This morning we're going to be continuing our dive into the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And so if you have your a Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn there. Additionally, it will be on the screen. We have a long portion of scripture to read this morning, and I'm just going to jump right into it. We're going to read this long portion together. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 1, verse number 1, and that's it. And I memorized my D group verse for the week, and I also memorized this one, and if you want to quote me or test me on it, I can do that after the service. Let's, let's read that. It'll be on the screen for you. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is what the Bible says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want to spend a few moments this morning just walking through this text. And we're going to look at three, ver- or three uh, terms specifically, but re- really we'll look at all of them. And I believe that the Lord has something for us this morning in this very short text this morning. And so with this on your mind, with a longing on your heart, would you again just go with me to the Lord in prayer? Father, these are your words. We come to you asking that you would bless them, that you would feed your people this morning through this. Father, we've come from different directions. Some of are encouraged, some are discouraged, some are lonely, some are broken. God, we've come this morning for a meal, and we pray that you would feed us. And we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So one point that I want to draw out of this text this morning for you is this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only true gospel out there, and everything else is either a distraction or deception. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only true gospel out there, and everything else is either distraction or deception. You might say, well, Josh, where did you get that explanation or that, that, that thing out of just a few words? How could you get so much out of that? Remember that we looked at the context last week. The gospel of Mark was not given to the church in a vacuum. There was a context. There was a greater context that really helps us to see the point as to why the motivation as to why Mark, led by the Holy Spirit, would pen these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And for a 21st century Christian, as we look at this without any context, without any background knowledge, it, it may seem like we're just grasping here and that there's not a whole lot really to be dug out. I would say to you this morning that there is so much that we wouldn't be able to get. And we wouldn't, if we spent three weeks on this text, this, just this verse, we wouldn't be able to get it all out. Let's go ahead and give it a shot. We'll begin with the first word I want to highlight this morning. That is the beginning. The beginning, which is the beginning of the gospel and the beginning of this verse. So the word beginning here, it really serves two purposes. It serves to explain the the first section of Mark's gospel, which is the explanation of Jesus' ministry and how it began. But even before that, how it was prophesied about by this man, John the Baptist. And so this passage here, the beginning of, of Jesus' story, really, we could, depending on how far back you want to go, Mark says it, it begins with John the Baptist. John the Baptist came and was preaching the Isaiah 40 message. He was connecting it with Jesus. And so if you have, again, if you have your Bibles and you're able to turn with me, turn back to Isaiah chapter 40. We'll be here a little bit this morning. And so you might even be able to just put Mark 1-1 to memory and then dance around with another text that will be in this morning. And so if you have, like I said, your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. I want to read just a few verses, starting in verse 3. 
The Bible says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for the Lord. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And even ground and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the, Lord, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a prophecy hundreds of years before the time of Christ, before the time of John the Baptist, and yet it is a prophecy speaking of John the Baptist himself and how he will begin to prepare the way for the Lord. And so Mark, right at the beginning, connects us and helps us to, to see that there is this story of Jesus does not necessarily just begin with the incarnation of the Son of God, but rather, even before that, John the Baptist, and even before that, Isaiah chapter 40. And we could trace it all the way back, this passage of the glory of the Lord being revealed. Initially, that was even prophesied as early back as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so right at the start, Mark wants us to know that this, isn't, this is not merely the, the prophetic activity of John the Baptist, but it's the redemptive activity of God in providing salvation for man. He wants us to know this is the beginning. God is actively redeeming his people. And the work there in chapters 1 and uh, chapters 1 verses 2 through 3 is that quote from Isaiah. And it finds its fulfillment both in the ministry of John and in the coming of Jesus there in the wilderness to be baptized. But here the emphasis is the unity of God's action in historic unfo- historical unfolding. And so think about this that God doesn't fly by the seat of his pants, as it were, but is enacting a plan that he has been working for time without end. The unity of God's action in the historical unfolding, the entire lot of events from the appearance of John to the beginning of Jesus' ministry is a single movement. It's the beginning of the gospel. So it connects with this prophecy and this reveals that the coming of Jesus is part of the greater redemptive work that God's people had been waiting for. But even more than that, it echoes back to the very beginning, even before the fall, even before Genesis chapter 3. And that's in Genesis chapter 1. Mark starts his gospel in the same fashion, in the beginning. In the beginning. This is no accident. This isn't just a, a, a consequence or a happen, happenstance. Mark, is no, Mark knows what he's doing, and he's demonstrating this work of God, both his initial work of creation and now his present work of redemption amongst his people. And quickly, we don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I want to demonstrate to you this, that God is keeping his promises. That God is keeping his promises. Recognize that this promise that he had made, that The deliverer would come. Even now, Jesus has come. And John has prophesied about that. And now Mark makes the connection for us and demonstrates this to us. And what does this mean to you? Well, it means the gospel is now available because of the work of Christ. But even more than that, if you really were to zoom out, what does this teach us about God? It teaches us this, that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Remember, we we talked about just a moment ago with our children that God is immutable. God is unchangeable. He doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his nature. 
His thoughts and his feelings towards us do not change. Neither do his promises. I'm not sure where you're at this morning. That's got to be an encouragement to you. That our God does not change. And that he keeps his promises. So many of us, as we look around throughout our own lives and the greater context in which we live, our society at large, we may come to the place where we're discouraged because we wonder if God is truly acting. We wonder if he is truly making all things new. And we look at our own lives as we stand in front of the mirror. Perhaps you're even disgusted with yourself this morning. And you say, is he truly making all things new? Does he really keep his promises? As we look at this text this morning, we see that he does keep his promises. We're reminded of his faithfulness to us. When, when we sin, his mercy is more. When we doubt, his faith is greater. And for all of our sinfulness, for all of our iniquity and our evilness, his righteousness is greater. And so in the beginning, man fell into sin, and there God promised to redeem and restore his fallen creation. And God is sovereignly weaving together the story of redemption into history. He's faithful in that. So here in the gospel, Jesus offers forgiveness via faith and repentance. But he also warns of judgment for those who do not repent. And so he's active, offering forgiveness, offering repentance to those who would escape judgment. And so this is the beginning. Mark says, in the beginning, the beginning of the gospel. And so let's look at this word, the gospel. The gospel. The beginning of the gospel. This is just the beginning of the gospel. Where does it start at? It starts in Isaiah chapter 40. It starts in Genesis chapter 3. It starts in the work of John the Baptist. And here we're seeing it made manifest. The word gospel, we've talked about this so much, but I don't think it's too much to talk about it even more this morning. It comes from uh, the English, the old English, Godspell. It means literally good news. That's why we call it the good news, right? It, it, tra- it translates uh, accurately from the Greek, which is the euangelion. In the New Testament, the good news is, what, is that God has provided salvation for all men through, life, his, or through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for Mark to convey this good news, he's created what many would call a new literary genre, which is the gospel and so Mark, Mark's book has come to be called the gospel, and that's because it contains the gospel. We talked about this last week, the announcement of the Christian good news. But at this point in time, as Mark writes it, in real time, there's no genre at all. What is Mark doing? Well, he's telling us the story of Jesus Christ. And what does he want us to know? That he wants us to know that Jesus has come, and he has preached a gospel. He is the fulfillment of the gospel, that he is the Christ, and that he is the Son of of God. And this is a message truly uh, of living hope. It's also been called, instead of good news, it's been called joyful tidings. And, the, and, the, and this word, like the beginning, it also has prophetic ties. In Isaiah chapter 40, again, if we were, con- were to continue reading, it references the, Messiah, or the messenger announcing the time of salvation. And so if you were still in Isaiah chapter 40, we can go back and start in verse number 9. So it talked about the, the, the herald. They're in the desert, in the wilderness. But now it, it talks about another one. 
It says, go on to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. This is verse 9. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of the good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And so who is this? Who is this one that fulfills this prophecy? Who is the one who leads the, his, will tend to his flock like a shepherd and will gather the lambs in his arm and will gently lead those who are with young? This good news, this herald of this message that God would shepherd and gather and lead his people. Who is this? This is Jesus. So oftentimes when we hear the name Jesus, we just gloss over it and we forget that Jesus actually has a meaning. The name Jesus, it's the Greek form, Jesus, of the Hebrew name, which is Joshua. Joshua. And this means, Joshua means, Yahweh is salvation or salvation of Yahweh. God is salvation. That's what the name Jesus means. Which is why when, when the angel comes to Joseph and says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's saying, you're going to call him Yahweh is salvation. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Even in this name, Jesus, we, we see the explanation and the confusion that the disciples had. Lord, will you now at this time set up your kingdom and destroy the Romans and, and bring back the kingdom of, of, of the people of Israel back to power? Will you do it at this time? Matthew, was, or not, or Matthew records Joseph being told that Jesus will be his name. Why? Because he will save his people, not from their captors, not from their enemies necessarily, but from what? Not from who, but from what? From their sins. From their sins. So this name Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at this word Christ. What, what does Christ even mean? Oftentimes we can just jump over that as well as if Christ is Jesus' last name. And, and while I guess you could look at it that way, it's so much more than that. Christ literally means anointed. And behind uh, the, uh, the, the, the word Christ or the anointed is the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah. And so uh, this morning, as we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the one who would save his people from his sins, and the Messiah, the anointed one of God, testified from of old. This is Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. And so we should try this morning, as we hear the word gospel, to hear it as if we had been in the first century and not think of it as the, one of the, 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 the genres within the Bible, but to literally consider it's the good news that has been prophesied from old, and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the one with, from, through who Yahweh would demonstrate salvation. As I was studying earlier this week, I came across another ancient incident where this word, euangelion, or gospel, was used. And you see... When we think of the word gospel, we think, well, that's a Christian term. That's our word. That's, that's our term. And really, it's not. 
you know, we've taken it and it definitely fits. The Lord has given it to us. He called his message the gospel. So there's nothing wrong with using it, but just remember this, that it was actually a phrase. It was a, a term long before the gospel of Mark was written. So the, the concept was significant both to pagans and to, to the Jewish culture. And, and for those that were Romans, it would mean joyful tidings or even the reward of joyful tidings. And it was linked, listen, with the cult worship of the emperor whose birthday, attainment to majority, and even accession to power were reasons for the whole nation to party. The birthday of the Roman emperor his majority leadership and his, his, his uh, gathering of power, these were all reasons for the entire nation, for the known world at this time, as Mark writes this, to celebrate and to party. And the, the banners that were announcing the parties or festiv- uh, festivals that, uh, that would be held throughout the year, celebrating this emperor, this, this pagan emperor, they were called evangels in, uh, during that time. In fact, this is a really interesting inscription that I was able to come across. It's from the year about, about, about year 9 B.C., and it says, it says this, of Emperor, Emperor Octavian Augustus. It says, The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings which had been proclaimed on this account. The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings which have been proclaimed on this account. It's eerily similar to what Mark is saying here in his introduction, in his prologue to his story. Well, what's the deal here? Is Mark simply copying this other, uh, this other demonstration or, or writing here? What's taking place? What's the connection between these two? With this in mind, with this question in mind, and with this understanding that good news was associated with this Roman emperor, I would invite you to see that Mark's proclamation of Jesus the Messiah is on the same level. He's trying to say that Jesus Christ is on the same level, level, nay, on a higher plane. And for those in this day and age, they would think, what greater level of power and attainment could there truly be than the emperor himself? Who has it greater? Who has more power? Who has more say in this life than the emperor himself? And Mark, in a small way, even at the beginning, is saying, Jesus the Messiah, he does. And so whose birthday should we celebrate? The emperor's or Jesus the Messiah? Mark is saying, Jesus. Whose power should we celebrate that they have been given, as we read in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, and even in Isaiah chapter 40, whose power should we celebrate? Mark is reminding the Christians, not the pagan emperor, but Jesus Christ. Whose majority and leadership should we celebrate? Who's coming to power? Jesus, not the emperor. We should be celebrating the birth and power of Jesus Christ instead of a pagan, Christian-killing, self-indulgent, justice-obscuring fiend. This is what Mark is saying. This is the contrast and by the way, think of, how, think of the ears that would have been receiving this. Even as they heard that read aloud, it would probably shiver in their bones, recognizing that this was an affront, that statement was an affront to those in power at that time, especially to those Christians that were receiving this in Rome. 
I imagine that maybe even as they were hearing this read for the first time, or as they read it for the first time, they began to shake as they opened up this text. As they unraveled this scroll, as they heard it read, possibly in a private place, maybe in a home, maybe in a neighborhood alley, as neighbors gathered, shuddering, concerned that maybe somebody else had even heard them say this, because this was an attack on the emperor himself. The gospel, what greater news is there than the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, has finally come? What greater news is there? And what are we to take away from this, uh, this, this, this point of the gospel? How do we walk away? What do we take away from this? And it's this, that the God who keeps his promises, the God who keeps his promise has promised to save his people from their sins. And so that phrase, that statement, the beginning, what does it do? It connects us back and it shows us that God has not forgotten his people. He's not left us to our own devices. He's not a watchmaker that has aban- that's wound it up and then left it to be. No, he is presently working in history, even at this moment in time. He's keeping his promises. And what type of promises has he made? He's promised to save his people from their sins. He's promised to save his people from their sins. And so church, this morning, be encouraged. Be encouraged as you consider what it is that we're looking at this morning. That God makes promises. He keeps his promises. And the promise that he makes is that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the gospel that is being heralded even now. And he's so much greater than the emperor. And that would be hard to imagine in that day and age. And yet it was true. So there have always been those who would parade around as the sons of God, i.e. the emperor. No one truly has a good news message like Jesus. As we said in the beginning, it's either a distraction or a deception. There is no good news like Jesus' good news. There's none that compare to Jesus He is the true Son of God, which is the last thing I want to look at this morning. We'll spend a little bit more time here. This statement there at the end, the Son of God, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want to just, right at the beginning of our section here, this section, I want to just throw out a misnomer or or, or remove one. And, And that's that the Son of God means that because Jesus is the Son of God, that he's almost God, but he's not quite God. Oftentimes when we read that, we're like, hey, that's, that's what it's saying there, right? You're a, he's a chip off the old block. He's not the block. He's a chip off the block. He has some of the characteristics, like a father would his son, some of the looks, some of the, some of the strengths, some of the weaknesses, but he does not have the complete identity of the, the father. And that's not what this title is saying here. In fact, the, the title, the son of God, it means that one who has the essential characteristics and nature of And in this context, the essential characteristics and nature of God. In other words, it is God, the Father, in the flesh. Now, not the same person. It is God the Son. It is God, I should say, in the flesh. So what is Mark saying here? He he is the very Son of God. There's always been those who would claim that they are the Son of God. They are a son of God. Even the emperors themselves claimed to be the sons of the gods or the sons of God. 
And Mark is saying very clear that, that Jesus is nothing like that. That Jesus is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. Mark wants to not so much clarify, but to encourage the belief that Jesus was the Messiah. You see, you remember that the, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, was written to a church that was discouraged. It was written to a, a, a church that was facing persecution, facing loss and death. And they needed to be remembered, reminded rather, of the truths of Jesus Christ. And so what does Mark say? There's a temptation to bow the knee. There's a temptation to give in to whatever it is the emperor would say to do. To deny Christ. To accept whatever it is that he is teaching or that he would, uh, that he would lay upon the people. To bow and kiss the ring. And Mark is reminding them that Jesus has come. It's been prophesied of old and he has brought the true good news. There's nothing better, there's nothing greater than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he himself, he alone, is the Son of God. And again, as we begin our, 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 our study in the gospel of Mark, I gave you some, some uh, basic ways to look at the gospel of Mark, either geographically or by the titles of Jesus. Another way that we could really see the, the high points in the gospel of Mark is to look at two passages. And we won't look at them specifically this morning, but I just want to point to them. And that's chapter 8. In chapter 8, we see the confession or the answer of Peter to Jesus. He, Peter, is a Jew. And this Jew confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. This is a high part, a high point of the text. Mark, right at the beginning of the gate, says, I want you to know that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, who is the only Son of God. This is a Jew the Jews are looking for the Messiah, and Peter is quoted as saying, this guy, he is the Messiah. Peter knows him well. Peter has seen him, and the Holy Spirit has given him a, a, a unique understanding at this point in time. It's a high watermark in the Gospel of Mark. Peter says, this is the Christ. Jesus, you are the Christ. Remember, Peter being a Jew, this is a high tent stake, if you will, in the tent of the Gospel of Mark. And then in chapter 15, see the confession of a centurion, a Roman, a pagan man. And what does he do? Again, tied back to Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what does the centurion say as he sees Christ, Jesus Christ, the, the one through whom God, Yahweh, would provide salvation? What does the centurion say of him? He says, truly this man was the Son of God. You see, Mark makes the connection here for us this morning. And he demonstrates his, what, he, what he's getting at, both in chapter 1, chapter 8, and chapter 15. And he demonstrates to us that we need to know in this day and age, just as those Christians in, the gospel, or in, in Rome, to whom Mark was initially writing, they need to know that Jesus is the Christ, and that he is the Son of God, and that he alone offers a true gospel and a true good news. Anything else that comes from the emperor or elsewhere is a distraction or is deception. So without a doubt, Mark is, is posing the emperor versus Jesus himself. He wants us to make this contrast. He wants us to put the two together. Do you remember what I shared about Nero, the emperor of Rome at the time of this writing? He's a wicked man indeed. 
a murderer. To call him a murderer would be to put it lightly. He was slaughtering people. He was slaughtering Christians in, in the most evil and creative ways. And you might say, well, I don't even know how to, how to wrap my mind around that. Well, I, I want to make a connection for you. It's not a one-for-one. One. But you say, well, how can we even imagine what Nero would be like? You might say, well, is it anything like, like Hitler? Would it be anything like Mussolini? Would it be uh, like one of these other leaders of the 20th century? What about the 21st century? I'd offer this. How about, how about the, the, the North Korean emperor? How about him? One senior, this is an article, clips of an article that I had read recently. It said, one, one senior North Korean diplomat who defected to the South described Kim Jong-un as the 21st century Nero. A 21st century Nero. And he did this in, a, in an interview with a South Korean newspaper. And in that interview, he said that he is a despot. He can't tolerate anybody who would disagree with him. And anybody who does, he removes them. And not from their place of power, necessarily, but from life itself. He then went on to tell a story about a certain park that his uncle had been overseeing. The construction began in 2008, and there were reports that, that Kim, Kim Jong-un had, had shut the park down because his uncle had been managing it. And this defector, this guy, the whistleblower that was there now in, in South Korea, he said of, of Kim that, his, that an edict came from him that, that after his uncle, Jang, would be executed, then they would also tear the park down. Because every time he would drive by the park, he would just be reminded and be disgusted. And so this park, they, they invested millions of dollars in. They destroyed and tore it down. He kept seeing the, the face of his uncle. So much more. There's other stories here that we could read, but that's just one high point, or low point, I should say. It's also been said that during his term as a diplomat in the, in the regime, the, the, the defector, speaking of the defector, that he was aware of just the, the evil situation that Kim Jong was in. Even his brother was a high-ranking official, but he was in exile. And in 2009, when Kim, Kim Jong-un was officially named the next leader of North Korea, the, the defector said that, uh, that a friend in charge of the foreign currency earnings in China was arrested for providing funds to the leader's older half-brother to support some of his gambling habits. And other members of, of, of Kim Jong-nam's entourage in China were killed. It was his brother. Others wondered then, how long would it be until Kim Jong-un's brother would be killed? And then on February 13th, he was assassinated in a Malaysian airport. So this is an evil man indeed. How can we get an idea of what it would be like to live in Rome in the first century? Well, we can take a, a glimpse, just a look at Kim Jong-un in North Korea and think, well, this, is, this will give us a little bit of an idea. So imagine being... A North Korean, and living under the rule of this dictator, this one who thought, and he does, think he's God. Imagine living under his rule and seeing all this injustice and this evilness. And imagine the, just the desperation that you would feel. There's no hope for justice to be served. There's no hope. Seeing innocent people murdered, people that were just literally in the way removed, living in a place where you're suppressed, confined, there's no hope. And then imagine even living in that area and becoming persecuted, beginning to be persecuted, 
This isn't too much of a stretch in North Korea for Christians today. It's not too difficult to imagine. It's presently taking place. And this is a similar situation to what those in the, in the Gospel of Mark were facing. They're in Rome. And so as Mark writes this, he's saying, you need to know this. You need to be reminded that Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the one through whom salvation comes. He truly is the only one that offers good news. And he alone is the Son of God. He alone stands in the place of God. He alone acts on behalf of the Trinity. This emperor, no. Jesus Christ. As we think of who Nero was, as we think of who Christ was, the Son of God, versus the false son of God, the pagan son of God. I think it's so clearly demonstrated if we were to turn to Philippians chapter 2. To see the contrast between these two leaders, if one can be called a leader. I won't read the entire passage. If you have your Bible, just turn there to Philippians chapter 2, or just jot it down in your notes or on your loop. Maybe it would be good for you to turn back to this. But I want to begin reading in in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Christ, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't need to reach for it, but instead of reaching to be something, become something greater than he already was because he was at the height, the pinnacle, instead he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to point something out to you. Let's work through this passage there in verse 11, and let's work back to verse number 5. What's one thing that Nero wanted? Nero wanted that at at, at the name of Nero, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Nero is Lord to the glory of Nero. This is what he wanted. And he did everything in his power to receive that. Jesus, what does he do? Well, he is exalted by God the Father. Why? Because what did he do? He did the opposite of what Nero would do. He was found in human form. Why? He emptied himself. Moving back up to verse 6. He was in the form of God. Nero wanted to be in the form of God. Jesus didn't have to reach to be the Son of God. He was the Son of God. He was the very manifestation of God in the flesh. And Nero, that's what he wanted, and he reached for it. What did Jesus do? He emptied himself. Nero puffed himself up. Jesus took on himself the form of a servant, and Nero forced others to be his servants. He forced everybody to be his servant. Incidentally, I want to ask you this question. Paul is is, is calling us in this passage to be like Christ. He's saying, I want you guys to be unified. I want you to be in one one accord. I want you to have one mind. 
And how do you do that? Well, you empty yourself of your own selfish ambitions. And what do you do? You see others as more important than yourselves. The interest of others, what do you do? You, you, Jesus, he, can, he was more concerned about the interest of others than his own interests. Even in the garden, what did he say? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, it, your will, not mine. He subjected himself to this torture and to this pain. Even the humility of taking on the form of his very creation, he willfully did. It stands in contrast to that of Nero. And just in passing, which are you more like? Are you more like Nero this morning or are you more like Christ? Nero looks around and he, he sees a sea of people and he asks himself, how can I gain from this person? How can I become more wealthy? How can I receive more glory and acclaim from these people? How can I wring the very lifeblood out of them? Even to the point where he had his, uh, a huge section, almost 70% of his city to be destroyed, lives lost. Why? For his own glory. In contrast, what does Jesus do? He takes on himself the form of a servant. Would, would we be a church where people look at us and say, this is a church that as Paul prayed, in Philippians chapter 2, they are having one mind. And what is that mind? The mind of Christ. And they serve one another. But Nero, what was he doing? He was proclaiming a false gospel. Good news. I am your Savior. Even in some sense, I am your Messiah. The Jews had enough sense to reject him as their Messiah. And yet maybe they still thought this man can bring us goodness. He can bring us good news. Mark is reminding them that this is a distraction and this is deception. And so as we come to the, the end and we are about to land the plane, I would remind you that there are many fake gospels. There are many false gospels out there that claim that they are good news. There are many false messiahs and false saviors out there. And we wouldn't be so bold as to say as Christians that this is a messiah, this is a savior, but be it a politician be it a businessman, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Even a pastor, there are no men out there that are the Messiah. Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ, he is the Messiah. There's no leader or politician that can bring us this good news as Christ did. Think about this. The, the, the fake news or the false gospel declares that the fake God was born on this day and he demands your life and allegiance to be sacrificed and expended on the altar of his joy and delight. That's a false gospel. The real gospel, the real news, declares that the real Son of God was born on this day and he died on this day. Why? As a sacrifice for the sins of many. There's such a difference the fake good news announces the requirement that, that one can earn salvation by doing good works. That may seem like good news, even one that you would embrace this morning. In a Christian church, oh, I can do good works. This sounds like a good gospel. I'll do them. I'll earn my own salvation. And while it may sound like a good gospel, it is a false gospel. Similar to that, similar to that of Nero's, there's no value. There's no power in it. And the real good news announces that Jesus has done the good works for us, that he paid our sin debt, and now his righteousness is offered to those who would repent and trust, and they could wear his righteousness as their own. That's good news. Fake 
Good news invites you to eat, drink, and be merry, and that's it. It ends there. Serve yourself. Allow others to serve you. And the real good news calls you to remember that tomorrow, or in other words, soon, you too will die. And the judgment is coming after that. And good news begins with bad news, as we've talked about, that there is a dangerous judgment on the horizon for all those who have not placed their faith in Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and that's not you, that's you, you've not repented of your sins. You've not turned to Christ in humility, trusting the work of Christ on the cross. Then the good news is that there is bad news and you must repent and turn and accept the forgiveness that Jesus extends. And so the initial recipients of Mark's gospel, they lived in Rome. They were one of the most sophisticated societies in all the world and yet one of the vilest. You don't have to look very far to see an abuse of power and neglect of those in poverty that would, would, would exceed that of Rome. The actions of those in power were just, in a word, vile. The abuse of power and authority, terrible. The, the enslavement of, of so many, rampant. And this was a land that for many was unsafe, though it was led by the supposed Son of God, who would declare good news, good news. And it was empty. It was empty. Imagine living in that land. Imagine living in a time where this is the case. We live in a day and age that's not so different, though. Maybe not in our land, maybe not in the U.S. do we face a time and a, a place where persecution is so serious, so rampant. Recently, I was speaking with a missionary friend, and he reported to me that at a, at a, in, a, in a Southeast Asian country, as recent as two years ago, a Christian pastor literally disappeared. Literally disappeared. A van pulls up, men uh, pull him into the van, and he's never seen again. What was his crime? Preaching the gospel, encouraging his brothers and sisters to do the same, to see that Jesus is Lord and to share that with those around them. That the only good news out there is that of Jesus Christ. The only gospel out there that's worth sharing is Jesus Christ. He was arrested, never seen again, presumably dead. Not that long ago, just a few years ago, the Islamic State of Iraq released a report that um, they had killed 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians. For what? Some type of an avengement. But why? Because they were Christians. South Korean interpreter and Christian missionary was, was kidnapped, murdered in Iraq not that long ago. These are just a few of the highlights, if we can call them that. Uh, one Christian turned pastor living in um, Persia, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, in Iran rather, recently abducted and murdered. For what? He had converted to Christianity. Gail Williams, an aid worker in Afghanistan. She was shot on her way to work in, in Afghanistan by two men on a motorized bike. Why? Because she had been working for an organization that was preaching the gospel in Afghanistan. Not long ago, a man walked into a, a college campus here in the U.S. and began asking people with a gun if they were Christian. If they were Christians, he would say, prepare to meet your God. Graham Staines, 
just a few years ago, 20 years ago, I should say. An Australian Christian missionary, along with his two sons, were, were burned alive as they slept in their station wagon in India. We live in a day and age where it would appear for Christians today that things aren't as good as maybe we thought they were. Maybe it's not so different for many of the, our brothers and sisters around the world. And even for us, as I spoke a few weeks ago, last week rather, about the danger here in the U.S. and how the, there's a storm that, that's brewing in the U.S. Of, of hatred and intolerance toward those who, who claim the gospel and hold the gospel dear. And it churns and it, it actually threatens to make landfall directly and soon. So as we consider the, the climate of the, of the world that we live in at large and even the U.S., you might say, well, what does this have to do with us? Do we really need to be reminded? We need to go back and study this idea that, that in the beginning, or, or sorry, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, do we really need to be reminded about these things? Do we need to spend an entire service on a Sunday morning wrestling with the identity of the Son of God and who he is? Of course we do. Why? Because as things get darker, as temptation comes for us to, to bend and to give in and to change our, our faith and what the Lord even said, to redefine it, we need to be reminded there's only one good news. And that good news is worth holding on to, though we lose all else. Though we lose everything, even our lives. Because of the work of Christ, we cannot lose the life that he's promised, that he purchased because of the gospel. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only true gospel out there, church. And everything else is either a distraction or it's deception. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we take a look at society that we live in this morning. The situation in, around the world the climate and the, the temperature toward Christians this morning. And it's a sobering thought, it's a sobering fact to realize what's taking place. And even now as we look around, we wonder how, how long will it be until brothers and sisters trade the true gospel in for a false gospel? So many reports that we read on a regular basis of Christians all around us that are sacrificing and bending and bowing the knee to the emperor of this day. Reaching for good news. Something greater than what you've offered. And while it may not be present as clear for us this morning as it was for those in Rome in the first century, we also know the temptation is real. So as you encourage your saints in those days, we pray that you would encourage us this morning. That we would see Christ as beautiful and pleasant. As the fulfillment of the prophecies of old. Beginning back in Genesis chapter 3. Tracing it forward and through the prophets. Namely Isaiah 40. And all the way through John the Baptist. Would we see Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as beautiful this morning? May we hold dear to his gospel. 
In return, Father, would you hold us? We ask these things to be done in the name of Jesus. Amen.